Hello, and welcome back to the AI Insiders Podcast, the flagship podcast of AI and anthropologists, aka AI anthropologists everywhere. And if you find any more AI anthropologists, please let me know their safety in numbers. Why am I looking? Because I am such a thing. I am Adam Russell, the director of the AI division at University of Southern California's Information Sciences Institute, and I'm your host for the AI Insiders, where, if you don't know, we talk to humans who do AI, sure but I spend most of this time focusing on the human more than the AI. That's because I'm continuing to explore this premise that if we wanna know more about this AI thing, which as we'll learn today, I'm sure with our guests is a lot of things, we ought to prioritize also understanding the people who are doing AI, so to speak. So I'm getting to know them. Uh, that is to say my colleagues here at ISI and the AI division, in part by asking lots of different questions about them and their thoughts, their hopes, their beliefs, their fears about AI, and from that, I believe we'll actually get more signal about where we might be headed during this inflection point when AI is becoming more powerful, more pervasive, and also potentially more challenging as our future becomes increasingly intertwined with AI, often in non-obvious ways. And on this theme of non-obvious, it may be non-obvious why today my guest is Jay Pujara, because he kind of violates this podcast premise since I've already had the good luck of knowing Jay for years now, and I've admired his work, but I've not really had the time yet since I'm relatively new as an AI division director, to sit down and ask him these questions. So I've invited him on, and he has, because he's awesome and brave, agreed. So Jay Pujara is a research assistant professor here at USC and uh, a research lead at ISI, again in the AI division. And his principal areas of research are machine learning, artificial intelligence, and data science. He's also the director of the Center on Knowledge Graphs. And uh, I'm going to brag up front a little bit about you, Jay, which you can revisit. Uh, he also just recently received the 10-year award, also known as the Test of Time Award, for uh, for his work and his paper, actually, in knowledge graph identification. Uh, if you don't know what that means, that's okay, uh, because what's really important is the person behind that paper, Jay. Jay, welcome to AI Insiders. Thanks, Adam. With that intro, I'm interested to hear how you now would describe what you do if we went back in time and you got to visit with 10-year-old Jay Pujara. Uh, and ten-year-old says, "What are we doing in the future? How would you how would you tell Jay what you're doing?" Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, so, humans have knowledge, and we express it in many different ways. And the computers want to use that knowledge, uh, but there's often a disconnect between how humans express the knowledge and how the computers can use the knowledge. So, I'm trying to build that bridge between the computers and the humans and how they express knowledge and use knowledge. Okay, ten-year-old Jay, obviously very precocious might have some instinct as to why that's important, but nonetheless, he challenges you and says, what, why does that matter? What are we, what are we really trying to do? I mean, that's technically what you're doing, but if you're successful, what kind of future world are you making for me, future Jay? I guess the vision, the promise of AI is that our lives will get better, uh, that computers <laughs> yeah. will help us do things that we don't want to do or that are hard for us to do. And in order for them to do that, they have to know things. They have to know about the world. They have to know what we want. And if that doesn't exist, if we don't have that bridge, then they can't do that. So it's important if you want the your AI assistant to you know help you book a trip or figure out what temperature to set your house at or connect to somebody who you know, you'll be best friends with five years from now. I think all of those things in order for them to happen, the computers really need to understand this. Agreed. Um, but so was there a moment in which you thought like, well, I'm going to AI. Like AI is is clearly where I need to be. 
And if that wasn't the case, then explain to me how did you just sort of drift into this area? So I think the first computer science exposure I had formally, where it wasn't just like hacking around and writing some code, was probably in high school. Mm -hmm. And you know, you're not going to get too much um, AI in high school, but uh, I do remember reading, for example, Douglas Hofstadter's Goodell Escherbach, and in that. AI concepts were were kind of introduced. And then when I went to college, uh, so I was at Carnegie Mellon, there, were, there actually was a lot of interesting AI work happening there. My first summer, I was you know in the basement of a building helping build annotators for computer vision data. Building, I built a little tool where you could click on, okay, here's one eye, here's another eye, here's the nose, you know, next image. Uh, and so I think that kind of data is probably really important to where we are now. But uh, yeah, I, I think just being around in that environment and seeing the things that were happening, it kind of connected what what I was excited about to things I could do. Um, so given that, what advice would you offer a young person at this point looking to get into AI? Uh, do you have advice to offer or is it just sort of so scattered you'd be like, just eh, do your thing? I mean, my advice might, might actually be do your thing, but I would say compared to where we were uh, 20 years ago, there's a lot of stuff you can try out and just do. Mm. Computers are more powerful. There are online demos that you can try out some of these really complicated algorithms without having to install something. So in terms of what people today can do, they can get a lot more exposure to, to these systems and how they work. Mm. And I think that can be both good and bad, but certainly on the good side, it gets you a lot more insight into what AIs are capable of today. I'd say if you're excited about AI, try it. Play. Yeah, play. Interesting. So with that background of yours, what would you be doing if AI didn't exist in some parallel universe? To speculate, you know, one of the things I was excited about uh, in high school was chemistry or psychology, you know, um, understanding how the brain works or figuring out interesting reactions, or maybe I'd be a librarian. <laughs> you know, sometimes I think <laughs> you do want to organize knowledge, don't you? If that's right. Yeah. Um, I, I, and I, I like reading, uh, spent some good years of my youth in the library. So, uh, it, it's a little bit hard to say, but I think there's still many interesting ways to do research. And if you can't work on artificial brains, maybe human brains, uh, Jeff Hinton, as you know, a while ago, was, and he's still being slightly excoriated for it, predicted that AI was going to essentially make radiologists unnecessary, that it was going to be so good that we just you might as well retire now and certainly don't go into radiology as a career. That may still prove to be true, but it's obvious that it hasn't quite panned out the same way. Uh, this is not, by the way, to pick on Jeff. There's a long history of really smart, highly expert people getting the future wrong. You mentioned librarians. Convince me there's a role for librarians in the future if if AI is going to be able to organize and communicate uh, knowledge with us as seamlessly as, as you think it can. I guess when you walk into a library, part of what makes a library a special place in my mind is that it's welcoming. And I think part of what we as humans find welcoming are other humans. So even if the knowledge is accessible and retrievable through automated means, often the way we navigate knowledge is not through those automated means and guiding people through what's out there and creating a connection around it 
is still valuable. So maybe yeah. the librarian's role will change. Maybe they don't have to pick up holds from the shelves and you know send them to the next library or whatever the case may be. Hmm. Maybe a, a machine could do that and figure out, oh, I need this book for Jay and I need to pull it from this shelf and put it on the whole shelf. That's probably not the most exciting part of a librarian's day anyway. Um, what, what currently, uh, I understand technically what you're doing, but what currently do you think is the most important problem, uh, in AI? I always hate superlative questions like that because <laughs> I could not tell you what the most important problem. What, in AI what is, is most important problem to you in AI? So I think the problem I am most excited about right now is understanding science. Uh, and this could mean many different things. Yeah, you're going to have to uh, unpack that. Okay. So um, when you were running this DARPA score program, there was this question of, can we decide which science is going to actually produce reproducible results? And I think mm -hmm. that's a phenomenally important question to trust science and increase how much we can use science. Um, a second type of question is, how do the networks underlying science operate resiliently? And this is some work that I've been doing with Christina Lerman and a couple of my uh, great students, uh, Kian Arabian and Cassandra Rostandi, mm -hmm. of what happened during the pandemic? How did science change? How did we mm -hmm. adapt to this big disruption? Mm -hmm. um, and a third question is, what makes us innovative? How can we look at the people who had more success versus less success and see what they did. Did they collaborate with more people? Did they branch out or did they stick to what they knew? All of these questions about how science works, how we can do science, and the data is all there. And it seems like a goldmine for understanding what it is we as scientists do and helping us become better scientists. How far are we from really understanding science along those lines that, that you, you've laid out? It's such a deep topic, science. So yeah. I think you could study it forever. Uh, you know, oh, I think... Well, great. Uh, tune in next week when we continue <laughs> to study science with Jay Pujar. <laughs> no, I think this idea of like, well, how far are we from, you know, well, how far are we from self-driving cars? Well, I don't think there's just a self-driving car. And once we're done, check mark, we're, you know, everybody go home. I think we will continue to improve technology and to view this as when are we done is short-sighted because we'll never be done if we're doing it right. Fair. Yeah, fair. Well, I, I, but never being done, constantly improving, always progressing. Ideally, if we do that, there are other people who see that in AI and it points in a different direction. They see progress and rapid technological advancements and acceleration as being potentially really dangerous, uh, creating systems that are out of, out of our control. Uh, even if you don't believe in killer robots, it's clear that these systems can be really powerful and go wrong, whether consciously or unconsciously. What do you worry about most in AI? At present, I don't worry so much about killer robots yet. I worry that people are not contextualizing their interactions with the AI with the level of confidence that they need. So it might be that AIs are very helpful, but sometimes they're wrong. And possibly that recognition of when they may be wrong uh, or what they can and can't do isn't fully there. And it's changing so quickly that it's hard to know what they can and can't do. Hmm. That's true of us too, right? Other humans. Oftentimes it's hard to, but your point is like, we, we know that when we deal with other humans, but we're treating AI in a different way somehow. Sure. If, you know, you and I may have interactions and you might know that 
am pretty bad at email and I continue to be pretty bad at email a year later. But maybe, true. <laughs> you know, AIs, they might be terrible at making legal judgments today. And maybe two years from now, they're actually much better. We don't know whether that will mm. be the case. Mm. So, so we need to figure that out. But um, yeah, I, I take your point. So given this rate of change, as we learn more and we go through this inflection point, who who's a person from history, who could be alive for that matter, uh, that you would want to have dinner with? Uh, who you think would offer some some words of wisdom on how to think about this time and possibly even give us some some guidance on how to think about things going forward. You know, I think a great person to talk to is Isaac Asimov. Uh, I remember mm -hmm. he had this address that, you know, is on the internet now, he, talking about writing science fiction. He said, well, you know, I my first story I wrote about somebody building a rocket in their backyard and there was societal outcry and no one had written that story before no one realized huh. that there would be societal outcry against progress and to me it seemed obvious every time there has been progress there has been societal outcry and i wrote a story about it and it was picked up and published and so i think that sort of reasoning about the, the societal principles and how people react he was very insightful about uh, and i would hope that in that dinner, he would continue to have uh, that sort of insight into how society operates and how science fiction brushes up against reality in these interesting ways. How many of your students do you think will go on uh, to have a, a research career in a, in a university? It's hard to say. Right now, one of the difficulties is that if you go work at a large company, you'll make... Mm -hmm many times more than what a researcher at a university makes. And students these... ignore him. That is not true. It's just a myth. They will not pay. Yeah, no, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> and so I think I speak from my own personal experience. What happened with me for different reasons was that I, I did work in industry for five years, and then I went back and got my PhD and pursued a career in academia. And in some ways, it the reason that that progression was because I understood the value of being in an academic setting. And I think some students will probably go through that mm -hmm. transition of understanding the value uh, and what they really want. Uh, and other students, once you're earning all that money, it might be hard to, to leave it. <laughs> so yeah, uh, you got you to pay a mortgage on an island. It's true. Like, what are your choices? But um, so, so those who leave, I understand. For those who stay, there, there are people who believe that, you know, with most of the quote unquote public innovation, at least in AI coming from, from the large tech companies, um, there are people who suggest the university will become increasingly irrelevant in some sense, other than just as a, like a, a talent pipeline for those companies. I don't believe that. I'm sure you don't, but tell me why I shouldn't believe that. So I think ultimately academia, the main strength of academia in my mind is that there is no gatekeeping to the questions and there isn't necessarily the expectation of a particular outcome or product. Hmm. And that's important for research because if we knew what was going to happen, it wouldn't be research. And if you want to make a product, you really are kind of betting, you know what's going to happen and it's going to make you money. Hmm. So I think that there are different goals for industry and academia, and academia will continue, hopefully, 
contingent on funding from the government well, and other sources, yeah. uh, a place where ideas are freely explored uh, and we get to surprising results. Institutionalizing surprise. Yeah, that, that, that's interesting. Um, we're going to do a quick speed round. Okay, so so quick questions and I, fast answers are great. Who do you think is the best AI communicator in your opinion right now? Whenever I see a talk by Yejin Choi, mm. what a great talk. Mm. Perfect. Um, if the AI could dream, what would it dream about? I don't know. I, I would like to say, you know, a nice sunny day in the park, but probably uh, it's just, you know, man, how do I get out of my local Optima? Right, exactly. Something it's like, like instead of the final exam, you're kind of stuck in a, a local minimum and it's like, ah, again, how do I get out? I showed up with a local minimum. <laughs> that's that's good. Not just electric sheep and not world domination. It's like, how do, how do I get out of this, this local minimum? Um, okay, you, here's a crazy question. If there were an AI Olympics and you created an AI, which sport would you want your AI to meddle in? Inference. Inference is an awesome answer. Yeah, that's that's a sport I definitely want to see. What what do you think will be the last human task that AI will be able to do at above human level? What's what's our last holdout task? The last holdout task. Man, that that's tough. Um truly, I mean, this is why I hate superlatives because I take them very seriously. If you say mm. the last mm. or the most, I have to have be like, oh wow, that. The ranking. Um, okay, what would be a task that if in the next couple of years it surpassed us, uh, it would surprise you that you'd think like, oh, I didn't say that. Probably cooking food we want to eat. Okay, that would that would be nice and it is true. I'm not even sure I can do that right now. Uh, <laughs> be good. Uh, if, if I set the bar low enough, they, I will have no problem getting past it. Uh, Jay, we're coming up on time. Uh, it has actually been a real, I mean, it's been a true pleasure and a privilege uh, to talk with you. I didn't ask you the question of, did you ever think an anthropologist was going to be in the AI division at ISI? Um, but whether you think that's a good or bad thing, I'm grateful that I'm here and we get to work together. Uh, because the only way we can help realize this optimistic future, I think you and I share about this coming to be real with and through AI, it's by having you know a stable of talented young folks stand up, put their hands up and say, I want to help. But that that also can't happen effectively if they're raising their hand alone. Um, they need others to do it, uh, especially mentors like yourself. Encourage them to raise that hand and then be there to be a guiding hand uh, to make sure we get more, more diversity, more talent, more perspectives, uh, and frankly, as you say, more empathy. So Jay, thank you for your work, technically, societally, bringing value to our world that will, I'm sure, uh, continue to stand the test of time. All right, if you enjoy these short podcasts, please do that thing. Like us and give us stars. I don't really know what I'm talking about, but I assume they're out there and we need those stars. So give them and send them our way. Spread the word, send us feedback, especially if there are people at ISI you'd like to hear from and I haven't had on the podcast yet. We're making our way down the, the, the list, but there are plenty more interesting humans I've yet to interview here. And of course, just keep listening and learning. Join us please again for another episode of AI Insiders, where we'll continue to navigate our way through this weird, weird world trying to do what humans do best when they face these kinds of challenges, working together as if all our lives depend on each other because they do. So for now and for the future, fight on.